Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm very excited for this week's show because we are covering 2001's Josie and the Pussycats, uh, and joining me to talk about this landmark comedy, uh, du jour means DiCristino, it is Rob DiCristino, welcome Rob. Hey Patrick. Can we talk for a minute about why you're always doing my face? It's my face. <laughs> it's my face. Was it this face or this face? Um, too bad, too bad. Mama couldn't give you a good face. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Josie and the Pussycats just a little bit later. It is a sort of a cult favorite and a film that I think both Rob and I have a great deal of affection for. Uh, but first, before we get into that, Rob, have you seen anything good lately? You know, I think I have. And I have to... Uh, I have to send a shout out here to our friends Elric and Brian over at Pure Cinema. Yes. Um, I, I I've had this thing for the last couple of months where you know, and, and I think a lot of people who get into movies or any kind of media uh, have this problem where we sort of go through these cycles where we're looking for new things, but we're not finding anything interesting. You know, like we're not, we're, you know, like I've been red boxing so much, <laughs> and I'm just watching all this garbage, and I'm like, you know, I need to like, like Kevin Smith used to say that he would have to take time for like a year and just stop creating and stop writing and stop thinking and just ingest, you know, and I think I'm in this period where I need to like decompress and just ingest new things. Right. And, and I was looking for a way to do that in a way that's like not a waste of my time. And I'm just standing in front of the red box, hearing JB's voice in my head going, <laughs> you know, life is too short, Rob, life is too short, you know? Um, so what I decided to do, because we all love Elric and Brian at Pure Cinema. Uh, hi guys. Um, their first season uh, of their podcast um, I, I did a list. It features about 125 movies, and I realized that I had not seen about 118 of them. <laughs> <Wow>. um, <laughs> so I made a list, uh, and I've kind of, over the last week, just kind of been slowly checking them off. Nice. Um, I, I had them all organized by episode. Um, so my goal is, by the end of the year, I want to cover the first season. Um, and then if I can be more ambitious after that maybe next year the second season and um because of course those guys are great and they they you know they recommend the best movies and their pairings are wonderful and if you haven't heard their carpenter episode super double episode yeah uh you're you're missing out because um i'm not even a big horror guys you know but i man i love those two episodes they were so much fun so shout out to those guys so Again, i have a couple they're, they're, not here. to interrupt but their their gift is whether i've seen the movie or not um I always want to watch it as soon as they're talking about it. But whether I've seen it 20 times or I've never even heard of it, which doesn't happen that often, but like there's definitely stuff that is off my radar that I've never seen. And as soon as either one of them starts talking about it, I'm like, well, fuck, now I got to watch that movie. <laughs> I don't care how many times I've seen it. Like, oh, now I got to watch The Fog because of what they just said about The Fog. I want to go back and rewatch it. Because it's so much fun and they're so, you know, they have such personal stories yes. about it and their, their connections are so great. So um, so I made a big list and I organized it all by episode. But basically, I've, been, I've sort of been hitting them randomly. I've kind of been like searching by, you know, what's on Amazon Prime and what I can get streaming and so on. Um, and then I also I kind of started with some of the, my movie shames first. Uh, so if you don't mind, I just want to run through a couple here. Um, I started with 1984's Repo Man uh, uh -huh. by Alex Cox, which I am uh, embarrassed to say I hadn't seen. Um, man, this is a great movie. <laughs> um, it is, it is really wonderful. Uh, uh, Harry Dean Stanton and Emilio Estevez are great. Um, I was a big fan of Alex Cox without knowing it. Cause I know that he sort of co-wrote the screenplay for, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I think with Terry Gilliam. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm a huge Hunter Thompson fan. And I love that movie a lot. 
Um, and so I felt right at home. But the big thing I kept thinking of when I was watching Repo Man was Twin Peaks. Like this mix of like absurd sci-fi yeah. with like weird counterculture and stuff. I, I, I really, really liked it a lot. Um, I mean, it goes, you know, kind of off the rails at the end on purpose. <laughs> um, in a wonderful way, you know, again, it's kind of invoking Twin Peaks, but, um, where are you on Repo, man? You, you're a fan of that one because you've placed it in a couple of marathons, I think. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Again, one, a big part of what I love about that movie. And I didn't see it young enough. I feel like if I had seen it young enough, it would have been a movie that I was obsessed with because yeah. it has that thing where it's weird, but no one reacts to it being weird. Exactly. And I love that. You know, it's it's a better off dead to a lesser degree does that in, as far as teen comedies where it creates this bizarre universe that nobody acts like is a bizarre universe. It's just <laughs> the reality in which they live. Um, so I would have loved Repo Man as a kid. I saw it, you know, I was probably in high school or something. And I'm a huge fan of it. Actually, I was debating showing it to my film class this week. I suspect they will hate it. That's a good bet to make, basically, yeah. when you're showing any movie to any film class ever, <laughs> I've discovered as well. So, well, I don't, um, don't want to show them something like from the 80s. You know, I'm not going to show them E.T. Like, yeah, I'd rather yeah. show them Repo Man. Of course. Um, yeah, no, it's great. It's a ton of fun, and I, I, I can't wait to watch it again. Um, next up, uh, sorry, Patrick, but this was my first viewing of Stuart Gordon's From Beyond. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, I'd never seen it. It is easily my favorite Stuart Gordon movie. Um, oh man, <laughs> it's so much fun. I'd heard a ton about it, and obviously, I like it's one of those movies I'd ingested by pop culture osmosis. Like I could, like if I saw a GIF of it, I would recognize the GIF. Like, oh, that's from Beyond, you know. But I'd never actually seen the movie. Um, you know, I, obviously, I like Reanimator a lot. And I love the way Stuart Gordon makes movies. Um, Barbara Crampton. <sighs> um, creature effects are unreal. Was the sigh because you were trying to remember everything, or was the sigh because of Barbara Crampton? The sigh was because I got lost for a second okay, yeah. um, in Crampton. Yeah. Um, and uh, the creature effects are great. And what, what I love about Stuart Gordon, and I'm going to say this about one of your uh, another great filmmaker in a minute, is that his movies are so like simple and honest. Like I love the way From Beyond could easily spiral out to something like it, it embraces its weirdness, but in a way that never loses the characters, right. if that makes yep. sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really good. I really love from beyond. I started out with that. I think I did repo man and from beyond in the same night. And it was like, that's well, this new, is off. To yeah. A, that's a hell of a night off to a great start. Yeah. This is off to a great start. <laughs> um, I really, really loved it a lot. So, uh, I'm, I'm really anxious to pick that one up and watch it again. Yeah, it's, um, it's terrific. I was trying to articulate. I just wrote a thing about Stuart Gordon for Daily Dead, and I was—I had a whole paragraph where I was trying to explain what is so special about his films, and I couldn't quite do it. And, and, and specifically about certain films of his, because I love uh, Robot Jocks, and I love um, Fortress, the Christopher Lambert crazy yeah. sci-fi movie, but I feel like those movies kind of acknowledge that they're goofy, pulpy genre movies. And part of what I love about Reanimator and From Beyond specifically, and to you know, to another extent, Dolls or even um what's the one where Steven Reed goes through the windshield? Uh, I don't know. I cannot believe I can I'm blanking on the title of this movie. Um it's like a one word title. Anyway, um what I love about them is like Again, they're sort of played straight, and yet at the same time, we know that Stuart Gordon is standing off camera, like, cackling. 
Oh, of course. And I think the actors bring so much to it because they are so committed to it that it's like you don't even quite it's like it's like it's like watching it's like not noticing that your kid has grown up because you see him every day it's like you're in this movie and you by the time you get to the end you don't even realize like how crazy things have gotten because the movie has carried you there sort of yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. convincingly and you're just along for the ride and you're like wait a second what am i watching <laughs> um he just has this knack for i mean he really leans into the craziness but at the same time, it's like there's no winking about it. I can't I, – I, I couldn't – I no, deleted the paragraph because I couldn't figure out a way to say it. No, it's honest. Like the stuff that Ken Forey is doing in that movie, oh like when you really stop and think about what's happening – like I, I remember at one point I had to get up because like my son needed something. <laughs> um, and I hit, I hit pause and I like came back and I sat down and I was like, oh – He's not wearing any clothes. Like this is like I had I had gotten so invested in what was going on in the movie, I sort of lost control of myself. And but that, it's like you said, like they they just commit so much. You oh know, like gosh. it's such a great like when they believe it. It's I don't remember who said it, but you know when the actors believe it, you believe it. You know, like Jeffrey Combs and like everybody in that movie, they just commit so hard, and it's so good. Um, by the way, the the Stephen Ree uh, Mina Suvari movie was called Stuck. So that's the title I couldn't come up with, even though I said, you know, the one where he's stuck in the windshield and then couldn't come up with the word stuck. So this is my last podcast. And thanks, everyone. Stuck. Have you seen stuck? Don't get stuck. No, I haven't. But I'm looking at the I'm looking at the poster right now. It's like a it's like a uh, L.A. confidential kind of thing. It's uh, you really need to see it. All right. I'm added to the list. Um. All right, uh, moving on, uh, 1971's Get Carter, uh, Mike Hodges. Yeah. Um, now, you have you still not seen this I one? I still have not. I believe okay. I ordered the Blu-ray after listening to the episode where they talked about it. Yeah. I've seen the remake probably five times. And it's, still it's, haven't it's, seen the classic original. I should mention, this is from their uh, from their Death Wishes episode. Yeah, it um, is one of my favorite so episodes because that is a genre that I'm obsessed with. It's so good. Um, and uh, I, I actually I was thinking about it because I, I re-listened to you and Adam doing the um, the underrated heavy action. Yeah, yeah. I've listened to that episode like three times. I, I love it so much. <laughs> I just I just love hearing you guys talk about. You know, it's just so much fun because you know you have to hear my friends talking about action movies. Yeah. And it's so much fun. Um, but I um, I like it, Carter. You know, it's it's you know it's scrappy and it's documentary style. And it's all the things that you would think. And I was thinking of you when we talked about um, uh, uh, the Omen. Mm-hmm. How it was like, oh, that's exactly what I thought the Omen was going to be. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like Get Carter is exactly what I thought Carter was Get Carter was going to be. And it like clearly an influence on Tarantino and Guy Ritchie and Edgar Wright. And like the problem I'm thinking is like it's hard for me to sort of appreciate it after having already seen those movies that it influenced, like it's one of those things where it's kind of like, I can see what this movie is doing and doing right and doing different. And, and, you know, Michael Caine is really good and it's very, very, um, especially cause I think he did it right before the, or right after the Italian job, I think. And I think he said he was sort of anxious to play like sort of a different, more serious kind of gangster. Um, and it's very bleak. I've never seen the Stallone remake, so I don't know how closely it, it adheres <laughs> I to it. So not very, <laughs> but it's very bleak it's very it's sort of unforgiving um i liked it not certainly not as much as the first two but um it was a good it was a good one to check off the list i liked the way it was made quite nice. a bit um and uh moving on uh just two more real quick uh yeah. moving on to, to your boy joe dante uh-huh, uh uh-huh. 1987's inner space 
You had never um, seen Inter- Inner Space. Right. I had never seen Inner right. Space. No, I know. So listen, judge. I I said movie shames no, from the start. I, I, I feel bad when I have that reaction because I don't mean it to be like, you should have seen that by now. It's just sometimes it's surprise, but... Again, no one can see all the movies, you know, like there's a ton of stuff that I haven't seen that people would be surprised to learn that I haven't seen. I'm not going to be shamed about it. I've seen the remake of Get Carter five times. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know, but anyway, um, no, Inner Space is super fun. Joe Dante is just the best. Oh, like yeah. his movies are so good. His, and, and thinking of he was the director I was mentioning before when I said Stu, Stuart Gordon, like Stuart Gordon and Joe Dante are both guys who like I feel like you watch one of their movies and, you know, it's a Joe Dante movie. Yeah. You know it's a Stuart Gordon movie mm-hmm. because they have so much like Joe Dante's movies have so much like bounce and charm and mm-hmm. you know good old Dick Miller in there is the cabbie and <laughs> Meg Ryan is just like a total fox and it's like unreal. <laughs> um, but still like I love that it is again going back to this idea of like everybody buying in and it being about character mm-hmm. is like it's still like a buddy comedy premise. You know what I mean? Like the cocky guy learns to be sensitive and the sheepish guy right. learns to be confident, like and all that. Although I really don't think Dennis Quaid deserves the girl at the end of that movie, but that's another <laughs> yeah, problem. Um, and like, but then there's all these. So it's just like very like honest, straightforward movie premise, like a very classic kind of archetypal kind of movie premise that we can all connect to, you know. But then there's like miniaturized bad guy corporate executives <laughs> in the back seat and stuff and like. Uh, wasn't like, that, and that's and that's the genius of Joe Dante is like he will be handed a film that has one fantastic premise, you know, like uh, we're going to shrink Dennis Quaid down and put him into Martin Short's body. OK, cool. And that would be the movie for almost anyone else. But Joe Dante can't help but make a Joe okay. Dante movie. So it just starts layering on more weirdness, like Kevin McCarthy being like half size in the trunk or whatever Robert Picardo is doing in that movie, you know, like (laughs) there's all this other weirdness that he throws in there that, you know, for fans of Joe Dante like us, that this is what we love about his movies. But I think it's also the thing that sometimes would alienate the people who went to see the special effects comedy produced by Steven Spielberg. Yeah, yeah, like like Elric and Brian to bring them up again, they talk about handshake movies, you know, and obviously I just saw Inner Space, but like I could see showing somebody inner space and knowing after that if we were going to be friends or not. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like it's that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, that that face morphing thing that they're doing to Martin Short <laughs> is so much fun. And there's that great diehard moment at the end. I was almost in tears. It was so it was so funny. It was like the middle of the night and I'm watching this movie and like they see each other. It's so great. Um, again, Dennis Quaid totally does not deserve Meg Ryan at the end of that movie because, you know, whatever. But um, no, super fun. And like, again, just – a wonderful combination of a classic comedy premise with just that little swoop of Joe Dante weirdness. Um, and it's so much fun. Really, really good. All right. Lastly, Patrick, I know what this is going to be. I know what this is going to be. We're going to your boy, Danny Steinman. This is also from the death wishes episode. Yes. Director. Yes. Director of Friday five. Yeah. Linda Blair in Savage streets. Yeah. All right. Look, you gave me shit this week about this. I don't know if I gave you I get, shit. You gave me shit. You told me. <laughs> you texted me after you saw my two and a half star review on Letterboxd and you were like, that review is insultingly low or that rating is insultingly low. You're like, you have dishonored your father and the house of Atreus with that fucking rating. And then if you notice, if you go back, I bumped it up a half a star. I gave it the Bromley. Thank bump. you. 
You're welcome. Three stars, right, I so, never would have said anything, by the way. All right, so there you go. So you set me right. That's what you do. <laughs> That's right. Um, let me ask you this about Savage Streets, uh-huh. because of, of, of course, of course I had a ton of fun watching it, and of course I felt horrible about it the entire time. <laughs> Couple questions. Yeah. Is, is Linda Blair underrated as an actress? Uh, no. Okay, I didn't think so either. I just wanted to ask. <laughs> no, I would, I would say no. Because this is from that sort of famed middle period in her career, and I was like, Linda Blair is 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 she okay? You know, like, <laughs> Linda Blair is coasting on having starred in The Exorcist. Yes, yes. Um, all right, good. Uh, but this movie is so sleazy. Um, yeah. I I. <laughs> So it's 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 an hour and 78 minutes in and they still haven't gotten to the revenge part. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, like, it takes way too long to get to the actual revenge stuff. But once it does, like, like once it does, the end is so cool. Like the Linda Blair's God, again, feeling like a pervert, the bathtub moment where they're just gradually zooming. It's the it's the it's the beginning of the third act load up scene where the hero is coming to grips with what they have to do they're sort of crossing the final threshold into you know the ultimate battle and it's just linda blair nude in the bathtub Mm -hmm. and a slow pervy zoom in on her steinman got a steinman steinman got a steinman oh man friday five um (laughs) and uh and that being said like the ending is super badass and super fun and i totally but like i love that the movie just stops for an english lesson about dirty poetry and becomes like a sex romp in the middle like <laughs> i'm watching it and there's the classroom scene and they're doing the whole thing i'm not going to repeat the poem here but if you've seen savage streets which i assume everybody has uh because i'm you know the worst and i'm late to it but um she, the english teacher you know and i'm an english teacher so i'm thinking okay this is fun this might be an activity i do oh no it is not an activity i'll do with my students um they just break down this this they're trying to find like the direct object in the poem and whether or not it's references to this and that and uh, it's so sleazy patrick it's so sleazy but it, it was also yeah. super fun it was also super fun like it was like it was worth the weirdness in the middle <laughs> of just like let's stop and just be a, a goofy sex romp you know like that they go to the what's the 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 biology class and the professor pulls down the he pulls down the slide and someone's drawn a big dick on yeah, the right. it, it just it just gets goofy and no one is convincingly uh of high school teen, age. Teenage? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um so no, Danny, Danny Simon, you know, essentially made three movies that I know of, like three big features post sort of porn career. Uh one is called The Unseen okay. with Barbara Bach and it's probably like the closest he's made to a good movie, even though there's all this stuff in it that in 2018 is, you know, hashtag problematic um, because uh, Stephen First from Animal House plays like sort of a developmentally developmentally disabled character okay. and uh, really goes full Simple Jack. Um, nice. And then... Friday Five is on the other end of it, and Savage Streets Savage Streets is sort of right in that middle sweet spot where it's it's just as sleazy as Friday Five, but it's like more competently made. So I would make a case that it's his best movie. Um, having not seen The Unseen, having seen Friday Five and Savage Streets, I would agree with you that Savage Streets 
might be a little more confidently made. I believe it is. Uh, the Unseen is probably even a little bit more competently made. It almost feels like if you didn't know that it was Danny Steinman, you might not realize it was Danny Steinman, whereas Savage Streets, there is no mistaking who made that movie. Um, not in the least. On the past Friday the 13th, I watched uh, Crystal Lake Memories, that whole like six-hour Friday the 13th documentary. Yep. And... Uh, Steinman is has passed away now, but was interviewed at the time that the film was being made and really just looks like Grandpa Al Lewis in his later years, who was also just like a dirty perv. And I was like, yeah, this all makes sense. This is all. He's got that look. Perv look. Uh, geez. Who's the Death Wish guy? The dirty sex pervert? Um, huh? Michael Winner? Oh, yeah. Well, he's, he's yeah, one yeah. of them. Yeah. Jay Lee he's Thompson one of these, also. One of them. Uh, yeah. 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 So. Good company there. Um, <laughs> but no, winner Savage... gets a lot of love on, on Pure Cinema. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> um, but again, yeah, so uh, Savage, all five of these were uh, super fun. And uh, again, I'm trying to check off kind of the, the, the big obvious ones mm-hmm. um, that I should have seen first. But again, uh, Elric and Brian, thank you guys. And uh, everybody should check out Pure Cinema. Yes, absolutely. Um, what do I have? I have a, a weird mix of stuff. Like I've definitely started rewatching some of the Marvel movies in the run up to Infinity War, which is weird because most days of the year I don't feel like ever revisiting Marvel movies. I like them, but I don't ever want to rewatch them. Um, and then I feel like when these Avengers movies come out specifically, that's when I always feel like, oh, I got to watch some of these old ones, you know, um, so I rewatched Iron Man, Captain America, and Ant-Man, which I liked better this time. I think I was a little dismissive of Ant-Man the first time around because I was just like, eh, it's a little bit generic and um, in terms of the origin story stuff. And, oh, look, a guy who runs a corporation wants this technology. You know, it's Iron Man, basically. It's the exact beats of Iron Man. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the more of these movies they make, the more they can start to sort of differentiate themselves. So like early on when they were making that first run, it was like, ah, there's a lot of sameness to these movies, but now, you know, filmmakers are kind of coloring in different margins and and able to do something a little bit different. So, and I also know that I'm in some sort of weird major depressive state because I think I teared up at different points in all three of them. Oh, uh, so obviously <laughs> that's okay. I'm going through some shit. Um, I, uh, what else did I see? Oh, I watched beyond skyline. And that's <laughs> instant. Have you seen skyline? <laughs> I have not, but I saw that on your letterbox. I was uh, like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, did he lose a bet. <laughs> skyline is this movie that came out years ago, directed by these two guys, I think the Strauss brothers, and they were visual effects artists who said, we can make a movie and they make a movie that essentially takes place in an apartment building and there's an alien invasion and it looks very expensive, but was done very cheap because they did the effects themselves. And the movie is like sort of jaw droppingly inept in terms of as a movie, as a, as a dramatic narrative, it's fascinatingly terrible. Um, and so the sequel came out earlier this year, maybe, uh, and, and was getting kind of positive word of mouth. It was the closing night film at Cinepocalypse, which was a, which was a, a genre festival held in Chicago last November. And I didn't go cause I was like, I don't know, I'm not 
I'm not into Beyond Skyline, you know, but Frank Grillo is in it and Iko Uwais from the Raid movies, you know, and he's fucking awesome. So, and people were like, oh, man, this movie blew the doors off. It's so much fun. And it's just them kicking alien ass. And I was like, all right, I'm on board. It hit Netflix instant. I had zero investment. So sure, I'll give it a shot. I don't know if it's, if the movies are broken or I am like, (laughs) <laughs> I watch a movie like Beyond Skyline and maybe it's because, you know, we're talking about all these crazy movies, right, that I have been watching my entire life and have sort of absorbed into my DNA. So now when something like Beyond Skyline comes out, I know if I step outside myself, if my if my wife walked into the room, she would be like, what are you watching? Because, you know, Frank Grillo is teamed up side by side with this giant robot alien that has the brain of Eric Balfour in it. And they're fighting these other aliens who are ripping the brains out of humans. And, you know, on paper, it's so crazy, but I'm just, I'm to the point where I'm like, yeah, I accept all that. (laughs) Now show me something, you know, like that's not enough for me to buy into your movie. Like the fact that there's, ostensibly crazy stuff going on isn't enough for me to feel like this movie's crazy. Um, and I just, I, I didn't like the whole aesthetic of it. I just thought it was so ugly and over-designed again, I think because there's so much like green screen and CG and I, I'm sure it cost a third of what it looks like it cost. It It's definitely a bigger movie and has, you know, better actors and better stars and some decent moments, but I just... It, it was like weirdly disappointing <laughs> because I'm like, <laughs> I should really like Beyond Skyline. And for some reason, I don't. So uh, I'm sorry, everyone. It's the kind of thing where you watch a trailer. You're just like, got it. Yeah, got it. right. I don't I don't really need the movie. Got well, it. But I, again, I, I, I had hopes for the movie. Um, sure. uh, on the flip side of that, I did rewatch the A-Team. Yes. The Joe Carnahan adaptation of the TV series. a big fan of that movie. I am too. And I I don't remember why I felt like rewatching it because I hadn't watched it in years. But I remember going to see it, you know, the week it came out and being like, well, that was such a pleasant surprise. I had watched the A-Team as a kid, but I wasn't what I would call, you know, a giant A-Team fan. I had familiarity with the premise. I knew B.A. didn't like to fly. Um, And I was a Joe Carnahan fan, obviously. So I didn't know what to expect, and it's just – it's so much better than I think it gets credit for. And I know it came out around the same time as The Losers, and in the in the communities that I talked to, it was always like, well, The Losers is the better version. The Losers is cooler and scrappier, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan, you know, he's a badass, and he should be a movie star. And um, I, I – you know, The A-Team is really the only time Joe Carnahan has been given an opportunity to stage that – degree of mayhem and chaos uh on a, on a big budget and i just think he does such fun stuff with it i mean i was watching the scene where they're trying to fly the tank and i was like <laughs> this i'm on board for you know what i mean like this yeah. feels as crazy as it should and like there's a way to do it that gets buy-in from me um i think the cast is really fun you know the guy that plays uh, mr t he's like an ultimate fighter and uh, yes He's fine. Like, he's not great. He's fine. I think part of the problem is he's no worse an actor than Mr. T, but Mr. T was, like, such a personality and such a presence. And this guy, you almost have to also have that if you're going to try to fill those shoes. And he's maybe 
the weakest of the bunch. You know, he's the one that pops the least. Yeah. Which is a problem when you're playing B.A. Baracus. Um, That's Rampage Jackson, there by the is. way. There Quentin Rampage Jackson. Okay. Um, but yeah, man, that movie is really, really fun. Joe Carnahan is another one of those guys. Let me ask you two questions. One, where are you on the gray? I'm a fan of the gray. Okay. And two, do I need to rewatch Smoking Aces? I'm a big fan of Smoking Aces. Okay, because I have probably not seen it since 2001. I have it on my shelf. I bought it immediately after I saw it in the theater. I don't think I've rewatched it. Um, but that's also late 90s, early 2000s, Ben Affleck, and you know it's what a fan like I am of later that. Two, it's like 2006, maybe? Is it? Yeah. Okay, it's 2001, a bit later. 2002? Oh, okay, all right. It's a little bit later. Um, You're right, 2006. I apologize. And it definitely feels like the lead-up to the A-team. It's like sort of that same level of chaos and definitely working with the studio and working with bigger stars um, because yeah. prior to that, really, he had done NARC, which is very much like a 70s movie, you know. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, it's an awesome movie. Um, maybe his best. Uh, but yeah, I think Smoke and Ace is really fun. I mean, it, it's like almost non-existent as a narrative, but that's not why you watch it. You watch it because no. the cast is really cool and everybody's shooting at each other and uh, there's a moment where common carries Alicia keys downstairs and you're like, this is why movies were made. This is the most beautiful thing <laughs> I've ever is, seen. This is literally like, Oh, save I all will, of your special effects. Just <laughs> give me this. I will watch common and anything because of this movie. Yeah, I really will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, no, I love it. Was it was terrific. And it was like Ryan Reynolds sort of outside yeah. the box a little bit at the time. Um, Cause he was such a comedy guy in this movie cast him more or less as a straight man yeah i'm gonna, re- I would, I'm gonna I would, check it out i would rewatch it um yeah. the last movie i'll talk about <laughs> um it's a little movie that came out late last year got a lot of press uh not for being a good movie but for its casting and that is ridley scott's all the money in the world um okay. which made a, a, a bunch of news because ridley scott like a pimp decided to cut Kevin Spacey out uh, weeks away from the film's release and replace him with Christopher Plummer, which, you know, should have been the the choice all along. And I believe Ridley Scott said that Christopher Plummer was his original choice, wasn't available. And so then when this all happened, he was available. Okay, great. Uh, We have one less Kevin Spacey movie and one more Christopher Plummer movie. Because I remember seeing the trailer and Kevin Spacey is in these insane prosthetics. And It uh, it was really bad. If that had been the movie that had come out, let's say that like none of this shit about Kevin Spacey had come to light or even better that he hadn't been a monster for his entire life. And Kevin Spacey was just a, you know, a stand up dude, gave all the same performances, put on these same terrible prosthetics, showed up in all the money in the world. I would I would make a case that this movie would have been unwatchable because I think the only thing that was saving me was Christopher Plummer. Um, who got a, an Oscar nomination out of it. And that to me was a little bit generous. I think some of that was like, Hey, way to step up, Chris. Um, he's fine in the movie. Like he's good, but he's doing what Christopher Plummer does. The rest of the movie around him was like, what is happening? Um, Mark Wahlberg very much out of his depth as like sort of a CIA <laughs> private security. I couldn't even tell you Michelle Williams, who is a great actor. Uh, who has been good in a lot of movies playing similar parts of someone who's going through a great deal of stress or trauma. Um, 
whether it's Manchester by the Sea or Blue Valentine. I mean, uh, uh, what was the Brokeback Mountain? Um, she just, you know, uh, what was the? <laughs> I just keep naming the movies that I can't think of. Uh, Sarah Polly. Uh, Marilyn Monroe. No, I, I never saw that one. The Sarah Polly okay. one. Um, um, dance, dance. Uh, uh, Lucy, something. No, is that the Lucy one? No, that's the other one. Okay, <laughs> no. Sarah Polly directed it. Michelle Williams is is married to Seth Rogen, and cheats on him with some random dude. Um, I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> I'm having a rough night, everyone, and I wish I wasn't so because I know it. people are listening right now. Like, what is wrong with you? You're usually better at this. Take this waltz. I had the word dance. Come on, I was part of the Take way there. This Take waltz. this waltz. What I'm saying is Michelle Williams, really solid dramatic actor, right? Um, is 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 doing a thing here, and I don't know how else to describe it. But she got ten words out. And I said, I don't know if I can do this. Uh, and it, I remember it being the same reaction I had when I saw Jackie for the first time and I saw what Natalie Portman had chosen to do. It was that same like, oh, this makes me so uncomfortable because this to me is like such a miss with Jackie. I eventually kind of got on board. I think the filmmaking helped. The story was interesting. Um I got more into the rhythm of her performance and that thing that she chose to do. I never got on board with what Michelle Williams is doing in all the money in the world. And it was a distraction from minute one until the very end of the movie. Um, you know, Ridley Scott, a wildly inconsistent director. This to me was one of his big misses. I, that movie to me from the start, I was like, this is a red box movie for me because yeah. it's, it's going to be the kind of movie where you just can't separate it from everything around it. Um, right, right. it's almost, it's almost not a movie, you know? So it's a shame. It's a shame to hear that. It's Had Kevin Spacey it. been in that makeup and in this movie, it for sure would not have been a movie. I mean, it would have been like, <laughs> what is happening? How did these people all show up and give these performances? Did no one talk to each other? Did no one watch what was happening? Um, Yikes. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. All right. All right. Let's talk Jay and the PCs. Uh, Josie and the Pussycats from 2001. I remember going to see this movie opening night. I think it opened on a Wednesday. And there were only a few of us in the theater. And we laughed a real lot. And I said, well, this movie is being advertised as like, hey, here's a dumb comedy based on a comic strip and a cartoon that most of you don't remember. And that doesn't need to be made because, again, this was a time when every TV show <clears throat> was being adapted uh, into a film. And, you know, it, it might as well have been the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, you know, like the world doesn't need a Josie and the Pussycats movie. <laughs> and I saw it and I was like, oh, okay, so this is actually a really smart movie pretending to be a really dumb movie. And in reading a little bit about it today, I was reminded that uh, the late, great Roger Ebert really missed the mark on this movie and gave he it really didn't a like star it. and a half and called it Spice World, which I would also maintain, while not as smart as Josie and the Pussycats, is a smarter movie than it than Ebert gives it credit for being. Um, but yeah, just sort of lumped the two in together and was like, well, this is junk. And he's wrong because this is a really smart. So here's my thesis about Josie and the Pussycats. And then I want to hear your thoughts because this was your recommendation. My thesis about Josie and the Pussycats is it is one of the secretly greatest comedies of the two thousands okay. that uh, is almost 
unwatchable to any new audience because it will make no sense to a modern audience. I was thinking the exact same thing. It's one of the notes I made, which is that it is a movie that is satirizing and commenting on a moment in time yes. that it, that existed exactly when the movie <laughs> right. existed yep. and then disappeared forever. And I really like, we, I was trying to figure out last night what was it that killed the thing that this movie is talking about. And I really think it's because this is 2001, the internet exists, but not everyone has it in their homes yet. And I really think the internet obliterates I, music videos. It obliterates the music business. It obliterates uh, CDs. I mean, this movie is about, you know, encrypting hidden messages onto CDs. And you show that to a kid in 2018. They're like, what is that? What is TRL? What is this movie making fun of? Why does it yes. look this way? I mean, they just wouldn't understand any of what it's doing. And so now I can watch it and be like, wow, they really got this right. But it's so, like, as you said, of its moment that it has dated quite badly, which isn't to say that I don't enjoy it and that it's not still really funny and clever and smart and well done. All those things are still true. But to show it to a new set of eyes in 2018 is sort of a fruitless exercise. You would have to explain so many of the jokes. Yeah, like, you'd have you to have build to them a time machine. Like, I give when I show uh, I show my film students Back to the Future every year, but I give them a list of all the '80s references, okay. so that like they understand what tab is right. and stuff like that. And all that. Um, I but, literally but one of my notes like, it's one line. If they don't get it, fine. Yeah, this movie is like if the, the tab premise. line was built out to feature length. <laughs> Again, one I'm not saying no that as a criticism. I love this movie. Not at all. One of my notes is literally the whole underground operation thing is so quaint in the age of the internet. That's <laughs> right, literally what right. I wrote. Like it's so, it's so spot on for this exact moment of time. And just for context, 2001, I am uh, a freshman in high school, and I am just really getting into music and i'll talk about that in a minute i'm like it is the age of carson daly when serena Altrul showed up on right. the screen i was like oh nobody knows oh, who that is. that's not a thing anymore it, mtv news behind <laughs> parker posey flips to behind the music yes. and i was like how how did this movie ever exist <laughs> and thank god it did like because again it's like you said you can't explain this movie to anybody. I, I mean, I think anybody younger than me, really. Like, I'm on the tail end of yeah. this, right when I would have been most affected by this culture, and was right in the in the in the midst of it. And I just thought this movie was fucking hysterical. I could not stop. We rented it. I remember we rented it because um, I hope I'm not embarrassing him, but my dad had kind of a thing for Tara Reid, and so we would watch a lot of <laughs> Tara Reid movies. No, you embarrassed um, him. Sorry, Dad. Um, but uh, we need to talk we, about terror. <laughs> <laughs> and we watched it, and we were like, "Oh, this is great! Like, yeah, this is yeah. this is so you know, like we were thinking of you know, like Spinal Tap and stuff. Like, I mean, it's not as good, but like we were, we were like, oh, this, like you said, is is doing a thing that you know is is so much more than what it sets out. And I was so heartbroken. I think last night I, I reread uh, Roger Ebert's review. And I was like, oh, man, like this is one of those movies that, you know, it was you can't even say it was before its time, because like you said, you this movie doesn't exist. You can't you can't right. make this anymore. It doesn't right. exist anymore. Um, well, it's this weird thing, because I think the audience is so hyper specific 
because I think most of the people who are going to see the fun sort of pseudo teen comedy with Rachel Lee Cook and uh, and Tara Reid and, and Carson Daly doing a cameo are not there for all of the satire. And the right. people who would be there for the satire would not be caught dead going to see Josie and the Pussycats. So it was one of these things where it was like a few lucky people sort of stumbled upon it and then had to spread the word or like when it showed up on cable or on DVD and the audience started to find it. But it was sort of doomed from the start because it's one of these comedies and I've I've mentioned this before and I know Adam Risky and I have talked about it. There's a certain type of comedy where it feels like everyone involved is getting away with something that somehow the studio wasn't paying attention and they got to go make this comedy that they really wanted to make the way they wanted to make it. And the studio got, it was like, all right, we'll put it out. But you know, hot rod and Billy Madison. Um, and, and I would put Josie and the pussycats in there as well, because it's, it's, you know, as you were saying before we started recording, it's this $40 million, um, universal, movie that's sort of trying to launch a few movie stars and trying to capitalize on the teen comedy thing and trying to sell a soundtrack and trying to uh, use a brand, you know, the Archie branded Josie and the Pussycats. It's like all of these, it's put together for these very commercial reasons. And then they don't make the most commercial version of this story. And I love that. It's, it's, it's not the most commercial, but it is, I mean, it is a big movie. This movie feels big, right? Like you, to me, you feel the budget. I mean, maybe not in the production of the cinematography, but like it feels like they put like when they're doing those montages of the girls, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. playing around. I'm like, okay, they were shooting, you know, these little montages. Right. These little montages took a whole week, you know, each right. one of them, and there's four of them in the movie. So you're thinking, oh, they put forty million dollars and like their whole hand into this movie, and you know, I guess we'll get to eventually. But I mean, it bombed. It bombed. <laughs> it made less it bombed. than half its budget, right? It opened. It opened against Spy Kids. I'm looking at it now. Spy Kids, Along Came a Spider, and Bridget Jones's Diary. Um, I think Spy Kids was in its second week at that point. Bridget Jones's Diary was opening weekend. Joe Dirt was opening weekend. And <laughs> Josie and the Pussycats came in seventh um, and never recouped it. It was, ended up making about 15 on its $40 million budget. Um, but it is, it does feel so big. And every time I watch it, I think to myself, I'm like, oh, man, they put – I mean, part of it is like I think that that aesthetic is necessary to sell the satire. Like, well, sort of because I I think something I want to get into is like the way that the movie, you know, one of the things that that Ebert said in his review was that the movie, you know, he he nitpicked the subliminal thing. He said, it's not subliminal, it's subaural. It's really none of those things because it's. Because it's flashing up on the screen, it's 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 super liminal, you know. It's not, but you know, the point is the point is well taken anyway, Um, and. I think that the movie is it like needs to be that big over the top thing to sell that particular kind of satire, which I almost feel like does two things. It masks the satire even more because it makes it feel as though like you're not sure if you're if you're, as you said, kind of more of a general audience member, right. you're, you, you don't entirely see it. Right. But if you're if you're somebody who's really looking for it and you see it early on and you're and you're you're digging for it the whole movie, right. it almost questions like at several points I was watching it, I was sort of like questioning the movie's commitment to it because like the third the third act, like the girls start carrying the idiot ball and everything sort of starts to fall apart. And you're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? But then it picks it back up again in the end and you realize that it's playing on that right. convention, right. you know, and so you're like, oh, OK, but having to dig for that, like unless you're, you know, unless you're me or you and we've seen this movie 30 times, it's like. 
how much of that is as obvious as it feels like it should be. And then on top of that, like we said, you've got this whole early 2000s pop culture commentary that is just totally lost today. It's not to invoke the name of, you know, a better movie, a better, more beloved movie, but it's it. There's an element of Starship Troopers to it where it's like, I can't tell if this is the thing or is this making fun of the thing? Exactly. Um, and I think there's an audience that would just watch it and say, OK, this is the thing. And then there's another audience that sees, oh, here's what they're what they're actually doing. I mean, I put it on last night and just that opening, which is very funny and it's du jour. Um which features, you know, right, a song called Backdoor Lover, which in and of itself is funny. Um, and it features a bunch of actors from Can Hardly Wait, which we'll have to talk about as sort of the, yes. the run up to this movie. Um, giving this performance to a, a throng of, of screaming teenage girls and the aesthetic of the whole thing looks exactly like it's all fisheye and sort of bleached in this certain way. I mean, it looks exactly like every music video looked in 2001. And, you know, it, it was reminding me a lot of like the lonely Island, which is like, the song is funny, but what's funnier is how much they nail the thing that they're making fun of, how, how, how much it looks like the thing that it's making fun of. And that's how you do it. You know, you, it, by making it as sort of accurate as possible and then pissing on it, that's how you make it funny. And this movie does that just in the first five minutes. But again, you show that to somebody now and they're like, I don't get why this is funny. Like, what? who are these actors? Why does it look like this? Why are they using this camera? What is this music? Um, why is, why is the guy from footnotes. Franklin and Bash dancing? <laughs> uh, by the way, Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan, uh, writers and directors of this and Can't Hardly Wait from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. What's up? Like... This makes me sad. Like, it makes That's me from sad. Philadelphia? No, well, yeah. Like, only pieces of shit come from there. <laughs> you, Shyamalan, Kaplan, and Alphon. Um, So, like, you know, they're these comedy writers, and they get Can't Hardly Wait, and it's a modest success, and people really like it. And, you know, now it's famous, I think, for the cast, because it's just a who's who of people, you know, at that time, and a bunch of people who've gone on to do big things. And so this movie becomes sort of their reward. Okay, you get to do a bigger movie. And they really cash in their chips and they make a movie that's more challenging than Can't Hardly Wait was. I think this is an infinitely better movie than Can't Hardly Wait. I think most people that you ask either have only seen Can't Hardly Wait or would vastly prefer Can't Hardly Wait. Well, because Can't Hardly Wait is the thing. Josie and the Pussycats is the thing right, taking right, shit right, right. on the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's perfecting. It's perfecting the formula in both ways. Um, no, it's it's so yeah. But this this late nineties boy bands, the the whole TRL thing. Like, try to imagine. Like, I'm a high school teacher. I I, I think about trying to imagine explaining TRL to a sixteen year old. So you, okay. First of all, there were these music videos. I know they still make music videos, but like, you would call in. And you would request that they – why wouldn't you just watch the video right. on YouTube? Well, right, because right. there was no YouTube. Like right. this, this was this the only way you could see <laughs> the movie. Somebody else controlled what you were going to see. And yeah. so you had to ask them to show it to you. And if enough of you asked them to show it to you, they would show it. When Carson I mean, Daly walks out, like, A, Carson Daly – I know he's still like a thing. He is – 
he is the the spokesperson for sort of basic white male privilege like here's a guy who has built a career on being a bowl of vanilla ice cream check um, the nails patrick check the nails <laughs> right so he walks out and i'm like oh right he was a thing and he was like supposed sold to us as a cool thing like somehow kids were like oh yeah carson daly <laughs> he's really you know got his finger on the pulse him and ryan seacrest are just sort of the tomax <laughs> and samot of me- white mediocrity um but he, he walks out read bump well exactly so then that was like a meta joke at the time was like isn't it funny that he's trying to kill her because like they're dating and they're a power couple like in 2001 carson <laughs> daly and tara reed people were like yeah those two they're a power couple and uh he walks out and he's the front of his fucking hair is like dyed red and i wanted to uh... punch my tv because <laughs> i was so angry at 2001 <laughs> like so much of this movie is making fun of 2001 in a way that I'm on board with. And then Carson Daly walks out and reminds you like, Oh no, this really happened. We really did. (laughs) (laughs) We'd lived through this. Uh, And then I get angry. Josie at one point makes a comment where she says, uh, when she tells the girls to go and do TRL, she goes, Oh, I totally love that show. And it's the one line that always sticks out to me because Josie would not watch TRL. Just putting that out there. There's no way she'd watch TRL. Well, all right. So let's let's talk about the Pussycats themselves. Um, yes. Rachel Lee Cook. This comes from a time where the <sighs> studios were kind of trying to get her over. You know, she had a few shots. She'd had sort of her breakout with She's All That. She had a handful of um, sort of substantial roles. Um, and it never quite happens for her. And she still acts. Uh, I know she's still busy, but... A couple weeks ago, I was listening to, I think, an old episode of the Blank Check podcast. And I think it was the episode they did on Aloha, the Cameron Crowe disaster. Oh, God. And they were talking about sort of the parallel careers of Emma Stone and Rachel McAdams. And they had recorded this before Emma Stone, you know, starred in La La Land and won the Best Actress Oscar (laughs) and really went into the stratosphere. And they were just talking about how unfair it is the way that Hollywood sort of pits young actresses against one another and that they all have to try to, you know, they all have a couple chances and a few of them manage to sort of squeeze through and, and move on to the next level where they can sort of build a career as, you know, a a, a leading lady um, as an adult, basically not sort of the up and coming ingenue. And so few of them do it, you know, and I think they were talking about Aloha specifically because it was like Emma Stone and Rachel McAdams sort of are trying to squeeze through the same opening and Emma Stone basically comes out of it and Rachel McAdams had her shot and now, you know, she'll continue to act and she'll still be in stuff, but she's not going to open a movie. Um, that is so sad. <laughs> it, no, it's it's unbelievably true and depressing. I mean, because when you uh. when you think about like, how many years Matthew McConaughey got to make shitty movies. And I know now he's beloved and he wins Oscars and all that. But like, think about how many bad Matthew McConaughey movies we sat through where Hollywood was just saying like, no, 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 you guys, he's a movie star. Don't, don't worry. Like he's a movie star. Um, so Rachel Lee cook that, that conversation came to mind as I watched the movie because Rachel Lee cook, you know, this was part of that window for her and it didn't happen. And she's perfectly, charming and lovely in the movie like i have no complaints about her performance 
Um, I don't think, I don't think she has much interesting to do in the movie because she's sort of the straight person. Yeah. She has to carry us through it. She does a fine job of it, but I just, I don't know that the movie does her any big favors by like showing us that she can be more than likable. You know, she doesn't have to really flex any dramatic muscles. She doesn't really get to be funny. She's just pleasant and she's very, very pleasant. She has little flutters in her facial tics and stuff that really give me a lot of like I, I you get a lot out of them. You know what I mean? I I, I think I loved her. I, I had a huge crush on her aside from her, you know, just everything like this movie and um uh uh shout out to uh any newfound glory fans, but uh fans of the early two thousands drive through records uh band pop punk band Newfound Glory will know her from the Dress to Kill video, uh of which I was also a big fan. I don't fan. even know I don't even know what you're saying right now. <laughs> we'll talk about drive through records in a second because <laughs> this movie is totally the kind of mall pop punk I was super into in Oh my high gosh, and, no the music is and un- still unbelievable. Am. The music is so good, and I love it so much. I would have listened to Josie and the Pussycats if they put out a, a, a record. 100%. But, um, no, uh, Drive Through Records was this imprint of, I think, MCA, uh, this indie imprint of MCA, and they put out a lot of the sort of more, not, you know, sort of more pop-punkish Blink-182 kind of music that I was super into in high school, um, and again, still am, um, very much in, uh, in the vein of something like Letters to Cleo, which, you know, we'll talk about Letters to Cleo, I right. guess. Um but Rachel Lee Cook starred in a, a newfound glory music video uh, as sort of the girl in the video. And then I think it was very shortly afterwards or very shortly before this, uh, uh, excuse me, before that video that the movie came out. And then, of course, she's all that and sort of cemented my crush on her. But um, you're right. She doesn't have a ton to do. She is she is sort of the straight person. Um, but she does. I do. I do think she carries it well. Like she carries. The, she does. Yeah. She, she's very honest. You know, like she has yeah. a very honest portrayal. And then, of course, Rosario Dawson is in this movie. You know, and Rosario Dawson, who I, I, I don't know how you feel. I don't think Rosario Dawson is as big a star as she should be. Listen, um, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about Rosario Dawson because again, I think she had a few chances, and it hasn't happened, and she yep. still shows up and stuff, and she does some interesting work, and then she does some stuff to pay bills. Um, I, she- I, I was a fan of Rosario Dawson, like. From the first time I saw her in Kids, I think, I was like, well, who is that? And she showed up in a couple things, but I'm telling you, when Josie and the Pussycats came out, it was like the clouds parted. I was like, (laughs) I was very in love with Rosario Dawson. And I don't know if my affection for her is coloring my current viewing, but even... Last night and today when I watched it, when the three of them are on screen and it's nothing against the other two actresses who are fine, I can't look anywhere else. And I don't know if that's because I have this crush on Rosario Dawson or because I just think she is a magnet. She is she commands the screen in a way that the other two do not. And she's given given even less to do than Rachel Lee Cook. She's literally given nothing to do in this movie. But she has that poise. She has. She's a movie star. She's she a has that movie screen star. presence. She is so great. That opening montage um, of each of them, like here's what they do in their time off. There is yeah. a moment where Rosario Dawson is climbing a rock wall, and she looks <laughs> up at the camera and she kind of smiles. I know exactly. And the, the shot screen you're is just about. filled with her face, and it's like, holy shit, this person is a star. Like it is unbelievable how much the camera loves her in that shot and how much she holds the screen. Um, 
And I, I, I think she's convincing, holding the base. Like she's clearly the badass of them, yeah, uh, as bass players are. By the way, um, bass players are always the coolest. Uh, so <laughs> she's so great and given nothing to do, you know. Um, and then there's Tara Reed, who, and then there's Tara, who, who isn't necessarily bad in the movie. No, this movie knows how to use Tara Reed. I, I think maintain. that's what it is. I think yes. because. They've given her a part that that capitalizes on what she does. It's fine. Like, I still don't think she's particularly good at playing the dummy that she's supposed to be playing. When you think about other, you know, think about like Romy and Michelle and how successfully those two actors played sort of dumb, for lack of a better word. Uh, I don't think Tara Reid is anywhere near on that level, but it's like compared to what Tara Reid would become this is fine. I just find it fascinating that they decided that two of the pussycats should just be straight people. And one of them could be funny. She does that. Like, yeah, she has that cloud cuckoo lander thing where like, I was, I was thinking about this part because the walls are mushy is still one of my favorite lines in any movie ever. I, I will walk into a room and hug the walls and say the walls are mushy, but watching it this time, like there's, she's, she's part of a couple really good gags, you know, with the, I still think the happy and you know, it thing is really legitimately funny. It's a funny joke. Um, but she has, I guess we'll talk about their, their actual individual roles to play in the movie because like part of the, part of the plot later on relies on her being easily manipulated. Um, and I don't know if enough attention is paid to her character for that to really pay off in the way that it should. Like you said, right. like not all the, not all the pussycats have a lot to do. Um, but I think, I think the movie pitches her. If we go back to where you're talking about starship troopers, talk about Denise Richards and starship troopers, <laughs> right, right, right. where it's like, you don't know if she knows what she's doing. Right. And this is no, just not disparaging the actress or any, either actress or anything like that. But it's just like, somebody it's like a, it's like a wind-up toy is walking across a table and the director takes the wind-up toy and he puts it or she right. puts it just in the place that they want it to be and it goes off to a glorious firework of of cinematic wonder and you're like yes this is it. i i you know you 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 do the luke skywalker at the end of last jedi where you wipe your shoulder off and you're like i this is right this is this is what she was meant to be it's the second best use of tara reed in a movie just behind the big lebowski I would agree. Uh, but again, it's uh, weird uh, that they only allow one of the pussycats to be funny. And then you have, you know, this kind of incredible supporting cast. We already mentioned all the can hardly wait people who carried over for basically two days of shooting because when they show up later in the movie, it's obvious it's, that three of them are not there. <laughs> and it almost becomes a meta joke unto itself. Like when Bill Murray doesn't have the shaving cream on him at the end of Ghostbusters, of, yeah. it provides yeah. an additional laugh because you just picture, oh, behind the scenes, he refused to do that. And same with this. It's like, well, they couldn't get those three guys. They were stars. And uh, what's odd about that, what's odd about that is that of the four members of DuJour, Breckenmeyer is one, and he was married to one of the directors at the time. They were engaged, I believe. They, they were, were engaged, not yet married. okay. Because yeah. he did not show up for the end. And right? I was thinking, well, that's odd. <laughs> uh, yeah, they went on to have two kids and then split up in 2012. And I read that, and that made me sad. I was like, oh, come on, true Super love. Sad. Just one, sad. win one for the Super team. Um, you have Parker Posey, like, just so let me ask you, going full Parker Posey. <laughs> who, who... 
ingests more of the scenery in this movie? <laughs> Parker, Parker Posey. Posey or Alan Cumming? It's Parker Posey. It, I think I agree. It's Parker Posey. I, it's just it's in her nature to do yeah. that. I mean, even when she's playing a more normal role, that's kind of what she's doing anyway. I haven't yet watched the Netflix reboot of Lost in Space, but the fact that they cast her as Doctor Smith, I was like, that is fucking inspired. I think that's inspired. I could. I finished the first episode and I couldn't. I didn't like the first episode at okay. all. But my son I'm is sure weirdly obsessed with it, and I don't know why. Like I don't know what Ooh. it is that that is drawing him to it. But uh, I plan to watch it. But yeah, even when she's playing normal parts, she's doing a, a subtler version of this, and so it's fun to see a movie where they're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah just go full Parker Posey. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Cumming is really fun too, but like, yeah, she's she's on another planet. Ugh. All right. So let me, since we're talking about these characters now, I, I, and we, we, I'm going to go back to, to um, Rosario Dawson for a second. Oh, we can char- do a whole podcast on Rosario Dawson the, if you want. Uh, please. The character of Val. Yeah. Okay. So there's this weird, like, undercurrent of racism in the movie where, yeah. like, they're constantly, you know, and it's obviously it's there for a reason and stuff. Um, why does... If if and, and again, I'm asking logical questions about this movie, but I, I sincerely I want to know because the movie is so brutal to her, and it doesn't feel like the reason is earned. <laughs> like like why is Wyatt Frame disproportionately pushing them away and sowing discord among the pussycats to make you know to make Josie a star? I understand that, but if his problem is that he can't keep bands together long enough. I, I don't know. I just had such a weird. I, it made me so uncomfortable. Like there's that thing where she's watching the thing about Captain Tennille and the chief, you know, and it's obviously like pointed, pointedly sort of pitched toward you know the racial element because he's the one black member and she's the one black member and all right. that. And I was just, I was sort of wondering, like, does that, does that track for you? Like, was that, did that feel out of place at all, I or was think, that uh, where I think, I think that comes more from a place of <clears throat> misguided attempt. At okay. like some white filmmakers being like, see, we get why this is funny um, and, and trying, That's... you know, their hearts are maybe in the right place to make a joke about racism. But when the rest of the movie isn't really going to deal with that in any honest way, it just comes across as like, huh? That was okay. Yeah, it doesn't feel Because right. I don't think Rosario Dawson's background really has anything else to do with with why, you know, her and Tara Reid are being pushed out. And unfortunately, I think the movie is especially brutal to her is because she's the one who's aware that it's happening. And right. so we feel her pain, whereas Tara Reid is just fucking clueless the whole time, so we feel nothing for her. Um, it just struck me as odd because, like, it, again, we're looking for this, you know, in the movie, and I'm, I'm trying to watch it really carefully, and I, and I keep seeing those moments, you know, those pointed moments that seem to be pitched toward her race, and I'm like, well, wait, like, what, you know, what's the movie doing here, you know? I, maybe I didn't pick up on some of them. Okay, it just, might just have been me. I I, know. You know, um, here's the thing, I don't see color. Oh, well, you know, that's a bad thing, right? Oh, shit. Damn it. <laughs> You're actually a racist. Oh, shit. Damn oh, it. this is not how I wanted to find out. See, in 2001. I wanted a surprise party <laughs> where all my <laughs> friends and family got together and told me I was racist. <laughs> and cut a Patrick, cake. that's an intervention. Which, <laughs> cut a cake to see which color you hate the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I, there's just so much, such better ways to find out than on a podcast talking about choosing <laughs> really, the pussycats. I'm really sorry, buddy. <laughs> It's uh, all right. It's all right. Anyway, how about how about Eugene Levy as this movie's Mr. DNA? And I, I love just, I love that again, a lot. Again, there's all these little jokes that are really funny, and you know the sponsorship thing. It's like, at what point does it stop being about the thing and become the thing? Sure, right. okay, but like, 
I never felt like the movie just was openly shilling for Target or McDonald's or wherever it was, you know, that had logos plastered all over the place. And again, these were not paid sponsorships by companies. Right. This was the filmmaker saying, no, it. the joke is funnier if we use real world uh, companies, you know, because I guess they had discussed using fake brands like they do on The Simpsons or whatever. Uh, but they decided, no, the joke is funnier if we're using recognizable brands. And I don't, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a funny joke. And I think that is a joke that could still play and still be relevant if we weren't living in the matrix where like, uh, young people seeing it now would be like, yeah, what's weird about that? Like they don't understand why it's funny. Cause that's the fucking world they live in, you know? Uh, so they don't understand what the joke is. I'm looking at a think piece called How Josie and the Pussycats Walk the Line Between Satire and Outright Hypocrisy. Okay. Uh, Consequence of Sound.net. Not to call out the author, um, but the thesis seems to be basically that what you're saying, which is that the movie right, right. doesn't handle that line well enough to be effective satire. It ends up being the thing rather than commenting on the thing. I'm not really sure I agree what with it, that. But what is it trying <laughs> to sell? Like, honestly, at the end of the day. Yeah. What is it trying to sell you? You know, like, I, I don't know. I guess they do say, like, Diet Coke is the new Pepsi one. So are they really trying to say drink Diet Coke? No, I don't think so. You know, yeah. um, the joke is at how quickly the opinions of the public can change, which is very much still a thing. The color palette in this movie is really fun. If you look at the costumes, even once they bring up the whole joke of, you know, orange is the new red and blue is new. If you look for most of the rest of the movie, most of the background people are all yeah. in one specific color. It's, like the uh, girls. It's so good. <laughs> as you had said, you know, it's a movie where you, you feel the budget because yeah. this is something that I'm always talking about with comedies is that so little thought is often put into what a comedy looks like. You know, I just saw blockers a couple of weeks ago and it's like, I don't know, put the people in front of the camera and film it and they'll say funny stuff. And that's what will make this a movie. And right. so when you see a, a comedy that pays attention to sort of formal elements more than most comedies, you really appreciate it. And I think this is a movie that really does, that really puts a lot of thought into what it looks like and how to put jokes up on the screen uh, without necessarily calling attention to them. Um, even if it is, as you said, just shifting the color palette uh, without necessarily calling attention to it. That is sort of a, a formal element of the cinematography or of the costume design or the production design. Um, and I appreciate that because so few comedies do that. You know, the closest that Kaplan and Elfant had come with Can't Hardly Wait was like some of those tracking shots that they tried to do that ended up getting hacked up because they had to cut around all of the like drinking to get a PG 13. So they okay. had these long tracking shots that they had to just completely destroy because they had to skip ahead to where somebody, you know, had a cup of beer or something. Um, so, you know, that was not a, a real formalist movie, which isn't to say that Josie and the Pussycats is, but it's definitely, they've really thought about what's in front of the camera, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, you know, white frame breaks the fourth wall a lot. It's very conscious of, I mean, there's even that gag with the CD cover or the, the, the jewel case and the number <laughs> right, one band right. in the world and all that. Which like, there great. are little gags about that. It's very, I mean, the, the, when they go to the command center and the Mr. Movie phone, you know, and you hear him in the background. And if you, you know, because I have done this, you freeze frame all the little scrolling right. uh, thing, you know, can't hardly wait was underrated and all that <laughs> stuff. Like, all those little, you know, visual gags and stuff. Funny how in 2001 that may have been true. And in, in 2018, 
mean, I kind of make the case that it's overrated, <laughs> but you know, it's part of that Empire Records group of movies. Uh, like, let's all relax, okay? To ourselves, being young is <laughs> great. I when I bought because I'm you know I'm a little younger, but I was you know definitely a time where I was into super into Empire Records when I saw it in high school, and I was like, yes, this movie is about being young, and you don't get it, and you know and sugar high and all that and i went to an fye to buy the dvd and this was i'm sure you remember this is the big scandal with the uh the uh remix fan edition of so that movie I, that never was only available the, on dvd i've never seen the remix one i have the original cut on dvd it's, it's really bad okay what's different about it it's 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 totally it's different cuts it's different takes um it's re-edited um i'd have to go back and really look at we'd have to do empire records pockets but um, i don't want to do that I don't really want to do that either, but I'll, I'll send you that. I'm sure there's a think piece somewhere or a list of a side-by-side -side of all the changes, but it really, if I remember correctly, it really alters the character of Deb a lot, as well as a lot of the Rex Manning scenes. And who's Deb? Deb is the, is Deb that is the girl. Is Yeah, Got Deb it. is Robin okay. Tunney. Got yeah. it. Um, but I remember going to an FYE to buy the uh, DVD, and um, kids, FYE was a store. <laughs> Stores were these things that were in malls. Malls were these places... Um, and, uh, the, I, I remember I gave it to the girl behind the counter who was probably five, seven years older than me. And she's like, Oh my God, empire records. This movie's about being young. And I was like, yes, it's about <laughs> we being are young. Having a moment. We were both cheering, you know, while yes, she works yes. at the corporate record store. <laughs> that is the villain of empire records. <laughs> that, that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Two things real quick. Um, this movie does the imitating painting thing that makes me think of Hot Fuzz, where Parker Posey goes in front of her painting of herself and does the hand gesture. Yeah, yeah. Always makes me think of Timothy Dalton and Hot Fuzz. <laughs> and when I was watching, when I was in the theater watching Thor Ragnarok, and he's doing the thing where he's chained up, and he's in the beginning where he's spinning around, and there's that gag where he has to, you know, hold on, wait, and he spins, and then he makes eye contact with the monster again, they're talking. Right. I kept thinking of uh, Tara Reid in the car that's spinning at the end of the movie. <laughs> When Josie's trying to have the heart to heart to her about how they're best friends, yeah. and the car is spinning, and you see Tara Reid have to sort of keep shifting in the car, <laughs> just little notes I wrote down because they made me laugh. Um, I think the movie has uh, a weak spot, uh, and that is uh, a, a gentleman by the name uh, of Gabriel <laughs> Mann. Do I have that right? The, the floppy haired douchebag. So I literally, I, I. I'm pulling Gabriel Mann out of my ass right now, and if that's his correct name, I actually his, will be kind of impressed with myself because I have literally – Okay, good job me because I literally, since seeing this movie in 2001, have only ever referred to him, no matter where I've seen him, as Beck Spader because <laughs> that's all he is to me. He's sort of an imitation hybrid of James Spader and Beck, and he's just like – He's not enough of a joke to be funny. You know what I mean? No, like there's he's, he's not. There's times where it seems like they're goofing on a specific type of I guess like 2001 proto hipster. Um but they don't go far enough, so I guess he's just supposed to be charming and maybe this is a carryover from the comic. Was she dating like sort of a hippie dude in the comic? I don't know. He no he idea. seems unworthy of her love and at the end when he's he's wait, wait, Patrick, body Patrick. surfing what's up? He is profoundly unworthy of her love. 
here's the thing. It's it's I have no skin in this game. Rosario Dawson remains, <laughs> and that's all I really care about. But yeah, the that problem- whole the whole scene at the end where he's crowd surfing and they're in love, yeah. and I'm just like, I don't give a shit. And then Rosario Dawson, like she does, steals that fucking steals scene by walking scene. up to them and just going hi, which is her saying like, knock it off, we're playing a show, <laughs> and once again takes control of the movie. The problem with that storyline is it's one of the few that the movie plays straight. Right, they play right. that. They play that romance straight, right. and it's basically as uh, my friend Lonnie Diane Rich over at uh, at Chipperish would say, "I'm hot, you're hot, let's be hot together," <laughs> um, which is a problem with romances in yeah. a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, because it plays it totally straight. Yo, she, she's in love with him for. I mean, he's just such a. I, he kept saying Alan M, and I kept thinking Chris R from the room. Like I kept, <laughs> I kept imagining what it would be like if Josie from the Pussycats was in love with Chris R from the room. Better movies. He would just burst into the hotel room. Where's my fucking money? Better you know, movie. Better, much better movie. Yeah, Alan M is Alan M is a misstep in this movie because um, he's meant to be charming, like you said, and he's just not. Um, and the movie should have done something with that. It's 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 not. Uh, I mean, the 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 romance is between the, the pussy cats. I that's mean, right. that's that's that's, right. that's that's where it right. is. We don't need to. And that's why it seemed odd as I was rewatching it because I hadn't seen it maybe in a couple of years, and it seemed odd rewatching it that like. All the stuff with Parker Posey and all the subliminal messaging wraps up, and then there's like 15 more minutes of movie. And yeah. I realize, like, oh, because they still have to play the big show, and Beck Spader still has to profess his love. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't give a shit about this. The movie's over. The monster's dead. The Pussycats are back together. Credits. Like, why do I need to watch Beck Spader crowd surf? Um it does get you the Rosario Dawson shot, though. It does. So it, Listen, I, you worth it. It, there's, she has some more screen time, and who am I to complain? Um, and then we go into closing montage. Right. So the montages are weird. Um, I think, you know, the ones at the beginning are really fun because they're about introducing who these characters are in a very short amount of time. Yes. Um, there's one when they are climbing the charts. That's insanely fun and even has the visual of them literally <laughs> climbing, up, climbing the chart, up the charts, which is yep. really fun and again helped by a, a, a kick-ass song then there's one of just them in the salon getting a makeover yep. that really goes on a long time and introduces no new story information and doesn't cut away from them getting makeovers to say and like it's... here are some other things that happened during this time. it's literally just the makeover and i was like well is that because the movie is positioning itself as a musical and so this is the the musical number but honestly after the climbing the charts sequence it ceases to be a musical there are no more real musical numbers correct it's until the end yeah, you're right. And that sequence is also color timed like Saving Private Ryan, which is really distracting. <laughs> Especially when there's that cutaway in the salon of the one stylist trying to stuff her guts back in. Oh, Jesus. That was uh, Alexander Cabot III. Talk about a guy who never found a thing to do in the movie, despite <laughs> really trying to find a thing to do in the movie. Uh, he's trying, and it, I feel like... Um, that actor, Paulo Costanzo, like, I feel like that happens to him a lot. Like, he, he's in a, a road trip and kind of trying to do the same thing. Like, he's trying to find his thing and it never gets there. I mean, the scene where he's, like, crying at the display window about the pants is, like, kind of yeah. funny. But in the same amount of screen time, perhaps, uh, Missy Pyle runs away with that relationship. Oh, for sure. And the problem is, like, a character like his needs 
an anchor to bounce off of. And I don't think the the girls don't pay him enough attention for him to really bounce off. I mean, Missy Pyle makes the joke. Like, why are you here? Cause I'm in the comic and, and yet the movie finds some justification for her to be there. It never really does for him. For him. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, Uh, Let's talk about the music, the music, Patrick, let me tell you about the music. (laughs) All right. I'm into it. I will just I, it's 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 on my iPhone. I'll listen to it. It comes on all the time. I think that this music is fantastic. This music is right up my alley. I mentioned before, like early two thousands drive through pop punk kind of music. Um, it is exactly in my wheelhouse. Uh, so I think that was even more of a thing that I really loved about this movie. Um, written by like a like Murderer's Row of like early. It was produced by Babyface. The soundtrack apparently. <laughs> Um, released on Playtone Records, yeah. apparently. Yeah, what's um, up? What's up? What's up, Wonders? Uh, hey, Wonders. The Oneaters. The Oneaters. Uh, you know, Letters to Cleo is a band I like a lot, uh, and I, I had to kind of convince myself that Rachel Lee Cook wasn't singing because I wanted to believe that uh, she was, but this movie got me into Letters to Cleo um, because I like uh, the singer's voice. Who, oh, Kay Hanley, who I yeah. Yeah. I apologize, but like writers, you know, songwriters from Fountains of Wayne, the Go-Go's, Counting Crows. I'm just looking this up. I mean, I realize uh, Jason Faulkner was on here. Yes, it's wow. it's a it's a killer soundtrack. I all these years, though, songs. I didn't realize Adam Schlesinger, who for years, like if you would hear a song that you liked in a movie or a TV show, if you're like, wow, that's a really good song, like outside of the thing, you would always find out, oh, because Adam Schlesinger wrote it. (laughs) Um, He wrote that thing you do. He writes a lot of the songs on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Like, he's the guy, right? Um, For years, and I knew he was associated with the soundtrack. For years, I've been walking around thinking that he had written three small words, but he didn't. He wrote Pretend to be Nice, which... Is also wonderful. It's it's. I don't like it as much, and here's why: because I think the sort of muted whisper. I don't know if that's the chorus or is that like the build up to the chorus? Because the actual chorus where they're just <laughs> like that's catchy. That's catchy as hell. Yeah. But yeah. it's that thing right before where they're just saying, "Can't you just pretend to be nice?" And I'm like, eh, I would turn this off if this came on. Like, yeah, it's like the pre-chorus kind of thing. Yeah, and I'm not yeah, into it. But like, good. but then I, I hear. Um, spin around which i didn't realize was written by adam duritz of the counting crows and like when that gets into the chorus that is so every band that i listened to um in the 90s that was the bands that i was in i mean like that i'm just and this is where we out ourselves as again just basic white men but like (laughs) i like shit that's catchy like I, I don't, love <laughs> I don't, I I'm love not, I don't, around. I don't need stuff that's super challenging. I really don't. And I'm not, I, I don't claim to be a music snob or to know much about music. I used to be way more into music. I used to be into stuff that was challenging. I'm not anymore. At a certain point I was like, I like what I like. I like shit that's catchy. Yep. Um, I like it to be energetic and catchy. And this soundtrack hits all of that. Like it is, uh, it's really good. My one problem with three small words is uh, isn't watch what you're about to say. Isn't every royal flush ace high? <laughs> I don't understand cards, Can but three small be, words is the best song in the movie. It's the best song in like many movies, right? <laughs> like, isn't it's, three small words like it's great? I love the, just the whole opening. I mean, because again, I love that song and I like the montage and it's the energy of the movie and like uh, 
you know, had they botched the music, the movie doesn't work, right? Because it's about a band. We have to believe that they could have a hit, that they could be successful, even though, you know, the movie is saying that they're basically successful because they can be packaged and because we put subliminal advertising um, in there. But like, I, I, every time they cut away to the bowling alley, I'm like, motherfucker, <laughs> they're playing that. Rosario Dawson is on stage <laughs> playing the bass to that song. And you fuckers are just ignoring what's happening right now. Um, it's very upsetting to me. It's super upsetting, but that move, but that music is so good. And again, it's like if I could go back, because I know there are a few uh, in the F this movie ranks who are gonna gonna be nodding their heads in agreement when I talk about bands like The Starting Line and Dashboard Confessional and The Movie Life, because they also listen to early two thousands drive through records. Because they're and younger than me, I get it. I'm telling you, calm down, Patrick. <laughs> I'm telling you that uh, Josie and the Pussycats would have been on drive through records had they actually existed in this period of time. Uh, agree with me in the comments. Uh, everyone, I'm sure they will. Um, but no, it's so good, and it's so, you know, it, it it it's like you said, like the music needs to be good, and it is. Um, we talked about three small words. We talked about uh, spin around. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like. Uh, is it you're a star? Is that the one I'm thinking of? Um, nah, 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 nah. Yeah, yeah. The one that's in the uh, that's the 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 makeup. That's the montage one, yeah, right. actually. I found that one to be very catchy this time. Again, I it like is, it is catchy. catchy. It is catchy. But it's it's nowhere. So if we're building a, a tri- Patrick, let's yeah. let's rate the songs for a second. Right, rank them. Three small words is first. Number right? one is spin around. Second, spin around is second. What goes third? Probably you're a star. Okay, not pretend to be nice. I don't think pretend to be nice, even though it breaks my heart because I love Adam Schlesinger. All right, I think you're probably right. I think you probably go. Yeah, I think I'm gonna go with the same thing. Oh well, the, do we throw the Dijour songs in there too? Because backdoor love, not really. All right, because all right, they're, they're not songs I would ever actually listen to. Which again, the movie gets right. <laughs> like, <laughs> this song sucks, which is why it's funny that everyone loves it. You know, and again, that was so of its time that like we are living through a period where Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and O Town. I mean, these people were yep. taking over popular music, and so I like that. Even though I don't think you know, Josie and the Pussycats is like making a political statement um one of the things that the movie says perhaps that it backs into is like no good music should be popular and so let's make sure that this movie has good music and that's what boxes out du jour and it's the shit of its ilk um and i like that message what do you think one more question i wanted to ask you and i'm looking for it i can't find it now so I'm going to throw it back to you because I can't remember. <laughs> well, it's, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know this movie has its fans. I sort of teased it out on Twitter and it got some response. I actually thought it might get a bigger response because when I've talked about the movie before, people have really kind of seized on it because I think the people that love this movie really love it. Yes. Um, and anytime I see someone mention it on social media, I always respond with du jour means seatbelts because it's maybe my favorite line in the movie. Um I it's interesting that I, I I sort of hope it finds a new audience. I don't think it will because again I don't think I think the movie is such a relic of its time. Um, but we are living through such a weird Archie Renaissance with Riverdale on TV and Josie and the Pussycats are on that show. Um, I watched about half the first season and I was like, eh, I get it, okay. But like, 
when it got in the pilot and they wasted no time having Betty and Veronica kiss, I know that it was like a meta joke about like, ha don't you all want to see this? But I was like, yeah, but you're just doing the thing, right? That's my right. think piece. Uh, skates the line between <laughs> satire and hypocrisy. Um, I kind of bailed. I know people like love it. Um, I'm very excited about the chilling adventures of Sabrina. That's coming to Netflix because I had read that comic and I don't know how it's going to translate to TV because so much of what made the comic great was the art. Um, but it was an amazing series and probably still is. It just came out so inconsistently that I gave up on it, but I'm really excited about the TV show. So we're that's, living through, go ahead. Sorry. That's Kieran Shipka, right? Yes. Like Sabrina. Yes. Okay. I'm a huge, I'm a huge Mad Men fan. So I love, I love her. I'm yes. excited for that. So we're living through this Archie Renaissance and I wonder if it would get any new attention to Josie and the Pussycats, but I kind of doubt it because I do think it's such a product of the early 2000s. That's the thing I was going to ask you, the question I, was, I couldn't find, which is why did this movie bomb? And I think we've kind of explored it already, which is, you know, and is it possible, like you said, for it to get another life? And I just, I just don't know. I don't know if... I don't think so. I don't think so either. I think you kind of have to... I hate to say it, but I think you kind of had to be there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because again, if you weren't, you just, you don't understand not just what it's making fun of, but also why it's funny. Right, right, right. Um, it's, well, it's, almost, it's that thing where you have to... I look back at it as like, oh man, I was, I was there. Like I keep thinking of the girl on the record store, the goth girl who's like, I don't listen to that crap. Right. Like, I don't, and they put her, they brilliantly take her. And there's like a SWAT team that comes and gets her. <laughs> and then later on in the in the underground bunker, she's in the room with all the other punk right, kids, right. and she's being manipulated. And I'm like, oh, that's a funny little subtle thing. You know, I'm that kid in high school. You're like, I don't listen to that. You know. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, that was that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, a movie that, you know, its fans will continue to love and support and champion. I think it is, you know, a textbook sort of cult movie, um, where it has its fans and probably isn't going to find many fans outside of that little circle, which is okay. You know, um, hopefully if people haven't seen it and they just listen to us, suck it off for an hour and a half, they will check <laughs> it out and maybe appreciate it. Even if. You don't know what it's referencing, even if you don't like this kind of music, even if uh, uh, you, you don't you don't they're remember horrible. CDs. Right, right. I mean, there's, yeah. even if you're like, this movie has nothing for me. Yes, it does. Um, yes. Rosario Dawson is in this movie. She plays a bass. Uh, she, <laughs> she smiles at a camera and uh, and all is right with the world. She just she never found the thing you know i mean i think she found some good roles i think 25th hour is a good showcase for her um i think she found some good stuff i remember seeing rent opening night the, the yeah, yeah the film adaptation of rent which i did not particularly like and i think is another product of its time and i think even by the time the movie came out um that that moment in time had passed and it was like the whole broadway cast and rosario dawson and her performance was the one I liked the most. Now, everyone who is musical theater inclined is cringing right now and unsubscribing from the podcast. Um, the reason I liked her performance the most was because <clears throat> she was the least trained as a singer. And so it felt uh, more raw. It felt more like a regular person just burst into song instead of a classically trained Broadway <laughs> yeah. actor giving the performance they gave on stage 600 times it felt like, oh, here's a normal person who just burst into song. Uh, and I loved that aspect of it. I did not care for the rest of the movie. But, yeah, she's somebody who 
I would say anytime she shows up in something, I will watch. But that is not true because I chickened out from watching that one movie on the plane uh, where Catherine Heigl like tries to. Oh, Do you know uh, what I'm talking about? I read box that movie. Um... <laughs> I told the story on a podcast where like I wanted to watch it on a plane, but I was so worried that the person next to me would see me watching that movie <laughs> on a plane that I chickened out. It's her versus Catherine yeah. Heigl, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over the, I, I, I reviewed that movie. Yeah. Uh, irresistible or ir- unforgivable or unforgettable or indistinguishable. Unfor- or <laughs> indistinguishable, I believe, is what it's Unwatchable called. <laughs> or something. I can't remember what it was called. But again, uh, Rosario Dawson was enough to make me want to watch that movie, even Sold. if I didn't. Sold. Absolutely. Yeah, no. I mean, pre- seriously, I, I would love to hear what people think who haven't seen this movie. I think Adam told me last night that he was going to watch it for the first time. So I'd love to hear what Adam thinks. Oh, he'll thinks. like it. Yeah, and I'd love to hear what anybody. I mean, I guess maybe anybody who wasn't around for this time period, if it if it if it tracks, if it makes sense, if there's stuff to find in it. But oh man, do I mean I I, I watch it. I mean, at least every year, it's it's so good and it's really fun. And unfortunately, it essentially um, tanked the careers of Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfond, uh, who never got another chance to direct. They did write a few more movies, mm-hmm. but like really shitty movies like their they credits made, are not impressive did they make one fewer movie than danny steinman uh yeah <laughs> they got fewer <laughs> at bats than the steinman bringing um, it back around they were writers on a very brady sequel okay like you do. yeah it's fine you know it's sure. not the worst not the best um wrote and directed can hardly wait writers on you know they were like these this team that studios would bring in to sort of punch up their comedy scripts because they were writers on the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, getting a second mention on this week's podcast. <laughs> uh, then they direct Josie and the Pussycats. It fails. They were writers uh, of Surviving Christmas, the Ben mm-hmm. Affleck Christmas comedy that like was delayed a long time and then released in October. Uh, the studio didn't even want to hang on to it for two more months. They dumped it in October. Um, and then writers on... Maid of Honor, the really bad Patrick Dempsey romantic comedy, and Leap Year, the even worse Amy Adams romantic comedy. And that's pretty much it. And it ends. And it's really a bummer because, again, I think Can't Hardly Wait showcased a certain energy and spirit. And I don't dislike that movie. I find it very watchable. Uh, as a first movie, yeah, I'll give it a pass. I think Josie and the Pussycats is, is a pretty big step forward. And I wish I could have seen what else they would do as a as a filmmaking duo um and it's unfortunate that we're not going to see that speaking of people who sort of had that chance had that opportunity and then didn't didn't pop the way they should have right exactly well, I, I, I say should have you never know i guess but eh, you know very very uh, brady sequel you know uh, well okay. right when your last writing credits are yes. Uh, leap year with leap Amy year. Adams and Matthew Good, a movie that even Matthew Good has shit talked <laughs> uh, openly. You know, he just has said like, "Oh, what a miserable piece of shit that was." I saw that in the theater. It's did you good. really? I did. Yeah, yeah, yes, I did. I think I rented like when I used to get discs from Netflix. I think that's how I saw that one. But I did see Maid of Honor in a theater. So, listen, the point is, Rosario. Split the difference. Oh, have I mentioned that she's in this movie? By the way. In the base. Rosario Dawson is in this movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And should have, well, whatever. Um, anyway, uh, anything else? No, I think that's it. I think we covered it. Yeah. This was super fun. Thank you. Thank you. As always, you can find our stuff every day at fthismovie.com. We're on Twitter at fthismovie, uh, Facebook, 
Instagram, sort of, YouTube sometimes. Uh, email whenever <laughs> at F this, movie, F this movie podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to write in, request a show, let us know what you think. Don't say something mean. Save that for the comments underneath this podcast. <laughs> Do it in public. <laughs> and uh, anyway, thank you very much, Rob. Uh, my hope is that we'll do something on Avengers Infinity War next week, but I'm bad at planning. So we will see. Uh, Rob, go ahead and take us out. Patrick, I love talking to you. It was really fun, but I have to go. I have things to sell. They're new. They're orange. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.